0: There we go. Um, But, hey, we're in Corinthians tonight and chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Life is full of warnings, right? Especially for me growing up from both parents and teachers at school alike. It is full of warnings. But even in today's world, I doubt you could have driven yourself here or uh, walked here or however you got here without coming across some form of a warning. Buy new product and the first thing, well, one of the main things you see is in the manual or stuck on the box some form of a, of a warning label. Don't do this with it or else this will happen. Use it this way. Otherwise, this won't work. Um, indicators on cars. That's a warning that someone is, at least in theory, going to turn this direction. Whether they do or not follow the own warning that they themselves give is up to Melbourne's roads. Uh, There's warning alerts that come over the radio for different things, pop up on your phones, even up on watches these days. There's warning signs on jetties and rock faces to, hey, don't dive in here, there's rocks below or water's too shallow, It's not going to end well for you. Uh, I should have Googled, and I uh, well, I did Google, but I didn't want to spend too much time here, which is why I'm not doing it, Uh, uh, the most ridiculous warning signs, uh, hence one of these things, a warning sign, not to put warning signs on a road. Um, But there are some ridiculous warning signs out there. Even on my washing machine, Um, on the inside of the door, if you open up the washing machine before you get in the barrels, there's a sticker that says, do not place a person in here. What on earth? That's a legit warning sign on our washing machine. Someone's obviously done that. But there's warning signs to slow down. There's warning signs to stop. Life is full of warnings. And now it got me thinking, how did we end up here? How did we get to this place? Um, I live right near Lilydale Lake and go there three, four times a week, and how did we come to a point of needing a sign on the jetty saying, don't dive in here, when all you need is to open your eyes and see that the water is not deep and it's not going to end well for you? Well, probably because the same way we end up with most warnings is that because it turns out that. Common sense isn't actually all that common. And at some point, someone previously has decided to dive in from the jetty at Lilydale Lake and it has not ended well for them. And that's like most warnings. We have warnings due to people having already made mistakes. And so when it comes to a warning, we're, we're left with two options. We can essentially, we have a choice to either learn from people's past mistakes or to repeat them for ourselves, at least in the hope that the end result might go a little bit differently for us this time around. This is the position that the Corinthians find themselves in at this point in time. The Apostle Paul has seen some frightening similarities between them and a specific generation of Israelites who made some terrible mistakes that ended in tragic consequences. And so tonight in this passage, Paul warns the Corinthians of not repeating these mistakes. But the scary thing about it is is that this same warning is equally as relevant and vital for you and I this evening as we sit here. And if we don't heed to it, we run the same danger as the Corinthians did of repeating past mistakes. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we'll be met with a different end than what they were. So let me pray. And then we'll unpack this a bit further. Oh, God, thank you for who you are and all you've done for us. Thank you that we can gather freely here and worship you. And, Lord, please bless our time in your scripture tonight. And through we trust through your Holy Spirit that you just reveal to us the ways that you would have us apply this passage to us in our individual lives. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, if you don't, that's fine, but hopefully you've got your Bibles and we can open up and look at the first 13 verses of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Now, the for, or your Bible might say therefore, at the beginning of this chapter, well, this connects what Paul's about to say with what he's already been teaching us through chapters 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians about giving up one's rights for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, the presenting issue that's at play right here is still specifically based around uh, idol food, Uh, the practice of eating food that in some way has been used in a sacrifice to idols and practically eating it in dining rooms or temple precincts of pagan temples. Paul's already objected to this massively on the basis of out of love for others. Hey, out of your love for others, don't be a stumbling block to them. Therefore, Lay down your rights and don't eat the food. Uh, But in this chapter, he's about to raise an even stronger objection. As we'll find out next week, Paul's about to argue that eating idle food in such a context is actually not loving towards God himself. And he goes as far to say in verse 21 that for a Christian to do so is actually to try and partake of both the table of the Lord and the table of demons. At the same time and so in order to make this warning hit home as powerfully and as strong as possible paul turns to one of the most obvious yet scariest examples that he can think of a biblical story where a huge group of um, people chosen people of god that had been delivered by god where they commit idolatry and thereby they end up forfeiting their inheritance And this warning is what we have tonight. So let's read verses 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the example he's using is clearly referencing the Exodus generation. And Now, Paul uses the term, our fathers here, not because the Corinthians were in any way biologically related to them. The Israelites were Jewish. Most of the Corinthians are Gentiles. Uh, But in Paul's mind, through Jesus Christ, just as the Israelites were the chosen people of God, now so too are the Corinthians. And now so too are you and I. Now, the Exodus generation who Paul references is the group of Israelites. Uh, They get a fair bit of airtime, but they're the group of Israelites who were delivered out of Egyptian slavery, all the plagues and Pharaoh and Moses, uh, but they're delivered out of Egyptian slavery and they follow Moses off into the wilderness. By day, they're led by a pillar of cloud or a smoke, and by night, they're led by a pillar of fire. And eventually, they get to a point where they cross the Red Sea. More explicitly, in verse 2, Paul describes it as they were baptised in the cloud and in the sea. And now what he is saying here is that Israel, just like the Corinthians, they experienced a baptism, a journey through water, which brought them to a new birth as a new nation under the leadership of Moses. It buried their past. It even drowned their enemies in the deep. And Israel were not just baptized in the sea, but also in the cloud. They were immersed not only in water, but also into the very presence of God himself. Now, baptism is not the point of tonight's message, but there's a really powerful illustration of what baptism does in a believer's life. As they uh, immersed in water symbolizing death to one's past, symbolizing death to one's previous enemies that once had victory over them uh, and birthing them into a a new nation under the leadership not of Moses but of Jesus Christ and in the very presence of God himself. Verses 3 and 4 show us that they didn't have uh, equal symbol of just One sacrament in baptism, but also of communion. Verses 3 and 4 And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So these Israelites, our spiritual ancestors, had an equivalent of baptism, they also had an equivalent of communion. While they were in the wilderness, they received miraculous food and drink that God provided for them. They ate heavenly bread in the form of manna and they drank heavenly liquid in the form of water flowing out of a rock. But ultimately, Paul wants to reassure us and them that the rock that followed them, that provided for them, was not some rock in and of itself that uprooted itself and and hovered around after them, but that rock was in fact Jesus Christ. He's keen to stress the divine origin of the people's provision. Jesus provided for the Israelites. Jesus provides or provided for the Corinthians, and it's Jesus Christ who provides for you and I. Ultimately, like the Corinthians. Uh, They had a redemption story. They had an exodus journey. They experienced the spirit in their midst. And they've got equivalents of both baptism and communion. And Paul is setting it up this way to show that, hey, they're just like us. They are just like us. And if we are just like them, then we need to pay attention to what actually happened to them. That's what we get in verse It says, nevertheless, even though they've experienced God's power, they've seen all the plagues, they've been delivered out of Egypt, nevertheless, even though they've experienced God's presence, even though they have just been provided for immensely by God and every need they've had has been met, even though all of that, we get nevertheless With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So this is the twist in Paul's comparison, and it it hurts. My Bible says overthrown in the wilderness. Your translation might say their bodies were scattered across the desert. Paul's saying that Israel, they, they had the privileges that you have. They've got salvation, relationship with God there on a platter waiting for them. They've got experience of the Spirit. They've got equivalence of the sacraments. They've got an opportunity to dwell in God's presence. They've seen all these miracles. Yet God was not pleased with most of them. Because of their disobedience and their grumbling against God, the majority of the Israelite generation that experienced God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt, well, most of them don't even reach the promised land. In fact, Numbers 14 shows us that only two adults who were in Egypt and delivered out of Egypt, only two adults delivered out of Egypt in that whole generation actually make it into the promised land. For the majority of them their bodies end up scattered across the desert through divine judgment against sin. Suddenly this comparison isn't such a heartwarming one. And it's why Paul uses it as a warning. The example of Israel's experience in the wilderness should warn the Corinthians of what happens to people who hear God's word who sees his works, who experiences his his presence, but still don't come to true saving faith in their heart. And you know what? That example should also be a grave warning for us as we sit here tonight too because it's all too possible to sit in church on a Sunday morning or night or whatever and hear God's word taught. It's all too possible to rock up to a Bible study and open the Bible and enjoy hanging out with people. It's all too possible to experience and see God's Spirit at work in people's lives, to witness miracles. It's all too possible to engage in the sacraments and in a Christian community, and yet for our hearts not to actually be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all too possible to engage in all of these things, and yet to still not truly have a heart, that is with Jesus Christ. So the true question deep down is just that. Is your heart actually longing after a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because the reality is that you can engage in all of these things without one. You can't the opposite. If our hearts are honestly in a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we will engage in all these things. We will get immersed in his bride, the church. We will read the word. We will do all of these things. So we can't have a heart in a relationship with Jesus Christ and not be immersed in these things. But we can absolutely be just doing these things without our heart being in the right place. So the Corinthians have joined the dots together already. But just in case they haven't, Paul spells it out in verse 6, where he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The wilderness stories are not just stories. They are examples that tell us about Israel, but also about us. Primarily, it serves as a warning so that we can see what happened and ensure that we do not copy their sin and repeat their same mistakes and experience the same fate. In verses 7-10 to 10 that Holly read out is where Paul shows the consequences of their sin and he, and he shows that the main sins responsible for Israel's downfall were that of idolatry And sexual immorality, worshipping something other than God or Jesus. And sexual immorality, seeking any sexual expression outside of the way that God has designed it to be. They're the exact same sins that the Corinthians are committing, which Paul has spent these first ten chapters trying to address. And if we're honest with ourselves, they're probably two of the major sins that bring about Christian's downfalls today. We're tempted every day with idolatry, I reckon at least. We're tempted every day to worship something, to prioritize something or someone more than what we do, Jesus Christ. Everything grabs at us from all angles of life, pulling for our worship. Clothes, shopping, sports, people, video games, relationships. Another one of the main ones is our sexual desires. Idolatry is any time we make anything or anyone more important in our lives than God. Well, that's idolatry. Because whatever is the most important thing or person in our lives, well, ultimately, that's what we're worshipping. And so let me ask you, what are you worshipping? Or who are you worshipping at the minute? Is it truly Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour or has something or someone else taken his place? Now, here's the thing. You can sit here and say, oh, no, Paul, it's definitely Jesus. But the thing is plenty of the Exodus generation would have made that claim too. So ask yourself, in reality, who or what are you truly worshipping? Do you have a heart? that wants a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's what you're getting after? Are you spending time with Jesus? Are you growing closer to him actually in saving faith? Is he who you worship? Or is that not the case because life's full of too many other priorities? Here's the thing. Often our priorities are a great indicator of the things that we actually worship in our lives. I catch up with people all the time, and... I'm not judging anyone because I have to preach it to myself every single day. But I hear regularly from myself or from others that I meet, oh, I'm struggling to spend time with God. Oh, I just can't fit it in. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. Oh, I can't fit in time with God. But at the same time, you're finding time for the things you really want to fit in. You're finding time to spend with Boyfriends, girlfriends, playing or watching sports on video games. Whatever it might be. What we make time for in our lives is what truly matters to us. And so you don't have to answer out loud, but maybe just consider internally for yourself. So is Jesus Christ someone that actually matters to you? Is Jesus Christ who you're truly worshiping? If you don't have any time for Him, maybe the reality is that you're not. One of my favourite Star Wars movies, Matthew. There you go. <laughs> um, I'm not going to give context, you don't actually need to know what's going on But it's in A New Hope And look, the Millennium Falcon's just been sucked into the Death Star (laughs) Sorry, someone like Amy, this is sounding ridiculous (laughs) But pretty much, there's a character called Han Solo Who uh, whinges about another character called Obi-Wan Kenobi And he calls him a fool uh, To which Obi-Wan replies Who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him Um, We've had these people go before us who have been foolish, who have made mistakes, and we have their example as a warning here. These stories are warnings to us, not just the Corinthians. My prayer is that you and I will not repeat these same mistakes as the Exodus generation did, that we won't follow them because we're kidding ourselves if we think that our end result is going to be any different to what theirs did. A heart that does not truly worship Jesus Christ will be met with divine judgment. Regardless of how many Bible studies we might attend, regardless of how many worship songs we might stand and sing, regardless of whatever else. A heart needs to be in a relationship with Jesus. Because At the end of the day, that is what we're called to and that Alone is what matters. And then let's close with a bit of encouragement. Verses 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So this warning is the whole point of connection that Paul has been making in this chapter so far saying, be careful, don't, don't fall off. Don't set your heart on evil as Israel did because you'll find yourself judged in the same manner as they were. But then in verse 13, he gives us this beautiful reassurance for any believer who is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to mankind. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So it sounds like Paul's trying to have a bit each way here, and he is. He's saying, he's warning, hey, you need to be really careful not to fall into divine judgment, but at the same time, he's ultimately confident that God will not allow you to. These warnings are absolutely real. If we as Christians fall and continue in idolatry or sexual immorality or whatever other sin might be our issue, if we continue down that path, we will face judgment. Absolutely true. But Paul is confident that ultimately God remains faithful, that ultimately God will preserve us to the end and protect any believer in the midst of temptation And always provide them with a way of escape. Paul sees his warnings in this letter, I believe, as one of these ways out of temptation that God has provided for the Corinthians, but also for us. He's kind of like a parent, right? Where I can say to my daughter Phoebe when we go to back beaches and stuff, we love doing that together, but I can say, hey, Phoebe, don't run off that cliff face. You'll die if you do. True, she will but I'm confident that she's actually going to listen to my warning and not actually do that. The warning's true, so is the reassurance. And this is where Paul's at here. These warnings are absolutely true and we need to heed to them. And for any believer who has a heart in a relationship with Jesus Christ, well, he's convinced that God will not allow them to fall off, that God will never allow them to experience eternal judgment. And the most comforting thing is, Holly can come up, I'm done. The most comforting thing about it all is his reason for the confidence that he has is not in his own power of persuasion, is not in his own abilities, but it's in the character and power of God, the God of the universe who called the Corinthians, who called the Israelites. Most of the generation didn't listen and didn't want him. He's called the Corinthians. And he's also called you and I. So may he be the one who our hearts truly worship, not simply with lip service, but in reality. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are and all you've done for us. We praise you so much that you love us, that you care about us. And God, we just praise you for warning passages like this. We, um, God, may we view them as strong uh, as uh, at times scary warnings of the consequences for anyone whose heart is not in a relationship with you Um, but Lord may we also be extremely comforted by it knowing that hey eternity with you is not based around our works, around our efforts, around our abilities not to sin eternity with you is based around who you are, what you have done through the gospel of Jesus Christ his death and his resurrection and Lord you don't demand perfection from us you demand Christ's perfection on our behalf so may we go into this week really having a reality check inside of each of our lives of what or who are we actually worshipping and may we come To the answer of being you. And if that's not you at the minute, may we realign our priorities to worship and honor you above all else. So it's a decision that we will never ever regret. Amen. And we actually have it.